0: Hey everybody, it's Alex. I have fantastic news. Get excited, raise your banners, find the horse. We're going live. Equity is going to come to you live on Thursday. That's June 24th at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. And if I've done the math correctly, I believe 9 p.m. GMT. If you want to come, the easiest way to find the hop-in link aside from the post we did and today's show post is the pinned tweet over on Equity Pod on Twitter. So twitter.com slash pod right there at the top. Hit the link. Be a cool kid. And uh, if enough of you come, maybe we can make t-shirts at last. Uh, But if you don't come, then we can't and we'll all cry. Hey, this is Equities Wednesday episode. Today, we are focused on all things Bitcoin. But instead of us all jumping on the same Zoom to record this locally, we did something a little bit different this week. Danny and I joined a Twitter space and dragged in a number of our TechCrunch colleagues to drop in and chat all things crypto. So if you're curious why Bitcoin is down, what's going on with China, are NFTs still a thing, and what really is a DAO? We got you covered. Enjoy crazy last week, Danny. Can you just give us a couple of uh, general notes about what we've seen as to why we're here? Well, I mean, it's been, a, the, what, the sell-off of the century, <laughs> or at least the last six weeks. So
1: Bitcoin going down from 64000 all the way past the $30,000 barrier, the lowest since last year, uh, essentially. So my $60 of Bitcoin is now worth, I think, about
0: $32. I, I mean, now it's down to the price of like one sandwich in Manhattan which is
1: pretty impressive. <laughs> exactly. You can't even get the YGU option anymore. But you've seen the exact same trend all across the board, right? So Ethereum is following this Litecoin, all the other coins, and then NFTs, which I'm still getting bombarded by because Roe and Lucas <laughs> somehow always refer me over to the NFT world. The NFT transaction volume has decreased significantly.
0: It has. And uh, another data point that really brought this to our attention was tracking the impact of the recent crypto sell-off on shares of Coinbase, Coinbase, of course, is the American cryptocurrency exchange that went through a direct listing earlier this year to great fanfare. It shot up to like $450 a share. And Danny, if I recall what I saw earlier today, it's down to like $220 now. So it's lost around half of its peak value since going public. And I have to guess that this sell-off is uh, partly to blame for that.
1: Well, certainly. And I, I think it's interesting because Coinbase makes money from fees, right? So the more transactions, the more money they make because people are selling off and aren't holding... Presumably, people think that the market is going to shrink over time, or at least temporarily. So, Coinbase has been hit hard. It's now worth forty-five billion as a market cap, down from I want to say ninety to hundred back, you know, during the IPO period.
0: Yeah, and that's actually a great segue to the first thing I wanted to bring up, which was I've been covering crypto for a thousand years, give or take. Back when, at you know, jobs ago, I was at the Next Web, and I wrote a story like Bitcoin crashes from one hundred and eighty to a hundred dollars, and so like we've been through this uh, uh, so many times. The thing that I, that I want to bring up, though, is that I feel like we haven't seen quite as much, like, long-term price appreciation. Like, Danny, from, like, $0 to $10 was enormous, 10 to to 1000 But, you know, we hit 16000 18000 back in 2017, I think it was. Now we're back down to 30000 That's only kind of a doubling in the last couple of years, which for crypto feels relatively tame. And so this sell-off, while certainly, you know, hard on a lot of our friends who have a lot of exposure to crypto, doesn't seem to me to be a world ending event I, i'm watching it but i'm not over here going like oh you know oh shit is this the end it's more like ah crypto is doing that thing again it'll have a period of depressed interest and then there'll be more down the road
1: well i, I think the one of the big changes here i mean in the past it's always been sort of on the demand side right if you look back at 2017 during the last wave there's incredible demand from everyday people. I, I was at the time working at Consensus Ventures prior to joining TechCrunch, which obviously invested a lot in the Ethereum ecosystem. And I just remember being in a taxi in Los Angeles where the driver, unprompted, was like, have you heard about this Ethereum thing? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'll like, that's kind of what I do. And he, he just started rattling off. He was like, I learned how to use a terminal. I learned computer science. I'm now all into this. I have my own wallet. And I was like, this is how you get people to learn computer science. You know, it's very demand driven. This time it looks like it's going to be on the supply side. So the, the big driver is in China, the central government has massively clamped down on Bitcoin and crypto mining in general. By some estimates, as much as 80% of capacity in China has, has gone offline um, given the new regulations just in the last seven days. I, yeah. I think one of the questions you have to ask is China essentially becomes impervious to this market. If it essentially is eliminated pool, you know, what does that mean long term from a volume perspective?
0: And there's been a lot of conversation about this. One, it's a meme in crypto to call any news out of China FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, doubt, kind of a classic uh, term. But I mean, in this case, the the crackdown in China does seem to be relatively material. It's not just kind of guidelines. Like people were like th- th- in Sichuan province, for example, they were told to stop serving electricity to these mining groups. And the argument that I've been seeing why this isn't a big deal, Danny, is that Bitcoin blockchain will adjust the difficulty to match the hash rate or the computing power that's, that's available. And that's entirely true. But removing so many possible customers from the pool to your supply or demand side argument really could have an impact. I mean, you know, you would think that in China, a place with increasingly limited personal freedom, Bitcoin would have you know, a wide market, and to have that removed from the possibility really matters, is my view. So the sell-off makes some sense to me. What it'll mean long-term, I don't know, but at least there's a reasonable catalyst for the sell-off other than randomness on a Tuesday, you know?
1: Well, absolutely. One of the interesting um, side dynamics here is, if you look at NVIDIA stock, um, over the last six months, NVIDIA is up 42%. And, and, Particularly from mid-May, so May twelfth, it was at five hundred fifty dollars uh, a share. Today, it is at seven fifty. Wow! And and part of the reason is is that I think as more and more of the the crypto market moves, I mean, we have to remember that Nvidia produces most of the chips, a large segment of the chips for crypto mining. Um, yep. Not specialized chips, but a lot of the graphics chips have uh, the right math properties and calculations to be able to do crypto mining. Um, and so Nvidia's had this fight between gamers and the crypto on where to supply their chips. Now that a lot of this market is going to move back, I think, into the West and away from some of the other kind of ASIC-focused chip companies, NVIDIA's stock is just skyrocketing. I mean, in a market where you know, demand is, is extremely hard to supply, obviously there's droughts in Taiwan and elsewhere to produce these chips. And so you have these supply constraints, and NVIDIA's just riding it out like, like hell.
0: Yeah, but it's funny you bring this up because, uh, and I was going to not, not bring this up, but here we are, You know, this is this last couple of, well, last week, I wanna say, is really good news for PC gamers. And the reason why is because there has been a mild decrease in demand for GPUs, gamers can now maybe get them. And for the longest time, there was kind of this running complaint in the PC gaming community because crypto companies were buying up all the freaking supply of new chips, new hardware, that could be lessening. I saw a number of reports indicating that prices for certain GPUs are starting to show some early declines. So we're already seeing the in-market impact on the chip side. Now, Danny, on the subject of NFTs and Ethereum more broadly, my thesis has been that because people are building so much on top of Ether and the Ethereum blockchain, it is building some real long-term value because it has a lot of kind of in-market use and i think that nfts digital tokens for ownership of singular assets if you will we're going to be a big catalyst of that but recently we've seen nft volumes decline and the price of ethereum drop temporary blip or more of a uh, indictment of the overall model of building a distributed computer
1: but i think if you follow a lot of the discussion on twitter right the the market is saying look you know web3 it's decentralized web you got to keep looking at the infrastructure play long-term in the crypto world. It's not about the finance. It's not about crypto. There's some on DeFi, obviously, so I'm not trying to discount that. But the long-term benefit here is the decentralized computer. Storage, application delivery, everything in between will be on the blockchain. And that, you know, theoretically could take five to 10 years. Maybe
0: even more. Yeah, or, or it may never actually even work at all. But I mean, at least the idea still holds for me. And, and this is why back to my earlier point about just not being that terrified of this price correction, even though, sure, falling from the 64K of Bitcoin to under 30 matters, the underlying theses still seem to hold for me, except for the idea that Bitcoin will always go up in value. That's what I don't understand. But at least in, in the decentralized finance world, the NFT world, and the idea of what you just outlined, that's still all kind of jumps. So to me, I guess I'm, this, is, this is not making me more of a crypto pessimist, I think it's, it's helping me maintain my crypto neutrality, you know.
1: I think that's right, Lucas. You're here. You you cover all this fun NFTs. Uh, so Lucas Matney is over out in. Uh, where are you these days, Lucas? I am in San Francisco. I'm and sorry I'm, to hear that. I'm sorry. I think to hear I might that. be the only person here right now. <laughs> I think you're the last the last person on the team who's still in SF. The streets um, are empty. It's actually just me. <laughs> it's a, it, I am legend. NFT edition—you can sell that uh, on the open sea. Uh, but Lucas, what are you seeing in the in the NFT world these days? Well, I mean, you know, when
2: when Ethereum was trading at like forty three hundred bucks, like I think even the people who were, were like, you know, at at the at the Lambo lot buying their third and fourth cars were kind of realizing that, like, hey, like. You know, if if gas fees are like three or four hundred bucks like this, obviously isn't going to be like a sustainable thing for, you know, any of these projects taking off. And like, you know, as a result, a lot of like popular like layer two chains kind of developed a little bit of a, you know, audience and like saw their coin price go up by like 5000 percent.
0: But so Lucas, can you go back up and explain gas fees to people who are not familiar yeah so i mean
2: you know there, there, there's, there's there's a lot going on but essentially essentially you're just like you're, you're paying for the right to be written into the you know the next block if there's a lot of high network traffic you're going to pay hundreds of dollars to mint an nft or perform some kind of like action on a ethereum smart contract so basically at, at high usage times there were these nfts that people were trying to mint on the blockchain and they were a hundred bucks but it was Costing them like four or five hundred bucks in transaction fees to even get, make it happen, so it was just like obviously unsustainable, and that's like kind of the reason that some of these other projects, like you know NDA Topshot, that like had their own closed blockchain and it's like low transaction fees, high speed, have really taken off in the past few months.
0: Okay, so on this question, it sounds like the early NFT boom built on Ethereum hard is seeing some degradation, but overall NFT activity and innovation continues is that a fair read of kind of where we are today
2: i think it's it kind of looks like it's entering a little bit more of a sustainable phase even if like the speculative moment isn't quite as much there
0: okay i, I have one more question about this danny That i'm going to throw it back to you but on the nft question and the creation of, of other chains to host nfts here's my issue with that lucas and i want you to tell me if i'm either misunderstanding something and being too pessimistic or if I'm actually right. So I'm happy to be wrong here. But here's my, my, my view. If I own an NFT of, let's say, Danny Surfing, just to give an example, uh, on the Ethereum chain, to me, I own something on Main Street. But if I buy the same NFT of an image of Danny Surfing on a chain that I made up, does it doesn't really matter that I own it, and so can these side chains really or other blockchains really support a strong nft ecosystem if you will, and kind of like you know and value creation and, and maintenance if they're not really where the focus of the crypto world is more broadly I mean it doesn't like in in
2: my in my view it doesn't really matter what the chain is it matters who the like what the issuer is doing. I think it's less about like which chain it's on necessarily uh and more just about like what the you know, the official, uh, issuer or like, you know, if like people isn't selling the same thing on 10 chains. He's just picking one. I think that matters more than which chain it's actually like being minted onto.
0: So that's probably correct. I still can't quite make it work in my head why I would spend money to buy the rights (laughs) to the ownership. Well,
2: you're, you're you're at the point that I think everybody's at. So I think that's okay. I mean, okay. yeah, but I I, but I, like, I don't, you know, there are definitely purists who are just, like, putting projects just on Ethereum right now, even though it, it doesn't, truly, really doesn't make a ton of sense to be doing so when there are some, some good options. That, that was great, Lucas, but look,
1: you know, Rome wasn't building today, and Ramon has not studied the crypto world in a day either. Um, so Ramon, our, our Paraspace correspondent, you're here? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so, Ro, you've been focused on the decentralization aspect of the blockchain world, so a lot more of the infrastructure, Web3 stuff. Um, How does that influence what's going on there,
3: given what's happening in the crypto markets today? Yeah, I think uh, it's pretty fascinating to see that uh, Bitcoin and other crypto assets are crashing right now. It, It shows, once again, that If you think about blockchain technology in general as something that is truly decentralized, we are not there yet at all. I think if there is one regulation change in China, or even if Elon Musk decides that Tesla is not going to accept Bitcoin anymore, it's a sort of centralization aspect as well. It affects the price of Bitcoin. Every time the price comes down, I think activity in general comes down as well. So there is less activity, there are less transactions on the various blockchains. And you can see that people are just basically holding the, the assets and waiting for the storm to pass.
1: Well, I think one of the interesting things here is, you know, there's the perception of the value of these coins and chains, and then there's the you know, intrinsic value to them. And, and when we talk about Dogecoin with Elon Musk, it, it's about, you know, external value, right, validated value, the, the value that people ascribe to it just because it's a thing. You know, same with NFTs. What I think is interesting when you get into the decentralized crypto world, you know, in, in DeFi and in Web3, is, is you start to get to intrinsic value. I mean, there's value to storage from the fact that it's storage and not just from the perception that storage is valuable.
0: Can I go back to the, uh, the Elon Musk moving the markets decentralization point?
1: Yes, I, Alex, you can. I, that was <laughs> if a you was, must. That was a
0: rhetorical ask for permission. <laughs> uh, I wasn't actually. I was just going to do it anyway, so, Ramon, on that point, I think the issue I have with your argument is that decentralized stupidity can often look like centralization. Dogecoin's price is decentralized amongst traders, people who are you know, buying and selling it at whim. You know, there's no government intervention. If, if they want to follow what Elon says, that's their business, right? But that doesn't really mean that it's less decentralized. It just means that the people who are active in the decentralization are stupid, is my read.
3: Yeah for sure but why is Elon Musk uh, so popular? It's because That's a great
0: question. He's become,
3: <laughs> you know, really rich multiple times through multiple ventures. It's not because of, you know, some decentralized companies. It's because some VC funds invested a lot of money in PayPal and Tesla and other companies and over the years he's he's accumulated like more power and and more money uh, through all these ventures <laughs> before we
0: before we get into DAOs, though one last note on, on the coinbase idea of
3: decentralization that ramon brought
0: up it, it, he said there at the end that the company could become in the future merely a collection of developers working on this stuff it's very ironic to me that if you go back and look at the coinbase s1 filings you'll see that the company has dual class shares reserving authority and power in the hands of the founders and their investors, uh, essentially the opposite of decentralization. So essentially Coinbase is a hyper-centralized company advocating for decentralized models. And that's a tension that I can't really un- unwrap in my brain without getting kind of shouty, so I won't, but I just want to point out that, uh, that particular kind of gross irony.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, and I think it says a lot about how you're supposed to build a startup startup. Uh... Is it supposed to be like everyone has a say in in the roadmap, or is it a sort of um, dictatorship? And I think many startups have taken this approach of, uh, you know, having a few people at the top, uh, even the biggest tech companies, uh, you know, the the Google and Apple of the world, uh, they they try to to give a lot of power to people at the top, and then then it sort of... uh, uh, you know, it sort of uh, goes down all the way across uh, the chain of the company, and I think Coinbase doesn't have a way to to make it more efficient. I think it's the, the harsh truth that they don't know how to do something truly, uh, you know, community-based and decentralized. And probably not going to talk about the culture memos, but it says a lot about it says a lot about the company that they they, they can't really accept criticism from from people, uh, you know. Not at, at the sea level.
1: yeah I, I think it's a space where you need you need both, right? You need leadership and a community of folks who are engaged, but you know are able to deliver the ideas. I mean, look at the Ethereum world. You have Vitalik who's sort of leading the charge. A lot of smart people around that ecosystem. Yep. And you know, Ethereum right now is going through a real transition. You know, Proof of Stake is getting closer and closer to reality with Ethereum 2.0. Maybe um, three years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. I mean, if you if you think of it as a completely upending. The entire compute system. I mean, this is like changing out Intel for ARM and a processor, right? It took Apple 15 years to go to do that. Ethereum's going to do it in a couple of years when there's literally tens of billions of dollars at stake and millions of people involved. So to me,
0: it's actually a revolution. Like, that's like we can't do that in the U.S. dollar. Well, no, but we're not trying to. The only country that's really trying to revolutionize their currency in that way is China. But don't get your hopes up about the uh, digital Iran because it's going to be designed to give the government even more power versus giving more power to the people. So it's kind of the, the what China's electric currency is essentially the opposite of what crypto wants to do. It's the, it's the exact opposite of decentralization. It's more a centralization. So I don't know. Do we need a digital dollar? I don't. I don't really know. We have a lot of stable stablecoins. I think it's fine.
1: I, I look, and the, the Federal Reserve did announce a week ago that it is exploring digital dollar technology, Whee! right? So, so I, I think that there's just a lot more coming here. But let's let's move the conversation along a little bit to DAOs because I do think this is like the most open-ended component of it, particularly as more and more work becomes remote, decentralized. You can imagine that companies actually do become decentralized, autonomous organizations. And I'm curious, like. Do we think that that is a future, A, that's going to happen? B, what is it going to look like? And are we going to enjoy living in
0: that future? Uh, last comment for me that I had to jump into a meeting uh, with the rest of the equity crew about the Monday shows. But like Danny, no. And I think that DAOs or DAOs are really just holacracy. If you recall that old Tony She management strategy for tech companies. yes, They're the holocracies of the decentralized world, I guess. And I, I, I think the earlier point about finding the balance between leadership and community is right. And I'm curious what a fully decentralized company would look like. I mean, thinking about the most famous open source projects, probably Linux is probably still the most famous. But I mean, think about the central figures to the Linux story and how much of an import they've had on production ethos and so forth. Even in those open source models, individuals still really matter. And so, how decentralized can you get? I don't know. But I got to jump, um, guys, a real fun time. And if you own crypto, I'm sorry. And I'll leave you uh, in the uh, <laughs> kind hands of Danny. Bye.
1: Thanks. Well, Ale- Alex is gone. He's now a listener. Okay, Lucas, you talk to Dow. One Dow. <laughs> I.
2: I <also> have <laughs> Sparkling.
1: You. What is everyone working these days at TechCrunch? I.
2: I, I what I, is I, this I will, new I, culture? I will. I will leave on one note, which I. I, I have a tough time believing that that model is going to like catch on super quickly. It just it seems it seems like revolutionary in an odd way, and I I just I, I don't
3: totally totally see it as something that's going to happen quickly.
1: Bro, are you still with us? Have you followed the DAO space at all?
3: Yeah, um, you know, not, not really closely, but I think there's a lot to say about how open source projects work today. There are a lot of contributors working on projects that don't get a lot of revenue and recognition uh, for those projects. And it's been kind of broken for, for a while that some of the critical parts of the operating systems and, and websites that we use have been built by basically uh, people and nonprofits doing it like on the side. And Google are going to give like maybe $1,000 a month to those contrib- contributors so that they maintain those products. I think it's kind of broken because those people, they, they deserve more money. And I think maybe DAO can, can be something powerful to recognize the value of those open source projects. And I think it's even more important to think as DAO, as new open source projects instead of new companies. I think it works better this way. Well, I think, you know, if you look at the pandemic as one case study of an application in the
1: last two years, you had thousands of people all around the world building out open source tools platforms, uh, dashboards, tools for first responders, tools for volunteers, and none of it was sort of compensated in any meaningful way, right? It's compensated out of good natured humanity, but you can imagine a world where you could actually have a socially beneficial outcome and also be remunerated for it, And, and to me, that's where the power of the DAO is, is to be able to flexibly spin up, you know, whether it's an emergency situation, a new project, something innovative, be able to just get the incentives right from day one. I I tend to be pretty optimistic. I actually think a lot of these technologies have come out. I think DeFi is absolutely autonomous now. It's going to continue to take over more and more of finance. Um, NFTs is a little bit of a strange one to me. And then DAOs, very open-ended. I I could see every possibility over the next 10 years from literally nothing happens to half the world is run on a DAO. um, And that's the, the future of modern work. But I think that's our discussion on Bitcoin today. For those who want to join another live stream, we have a live stream of equity Uh, Coming up on Thursday, that's June 24th at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. Join Alex, Natasha, and I as we gallivant all over the world of startups. And Drew, close us out. You know, I've seen a lot of Bitcoin tweets today. Um, I think my favorite one is Jason Kalkanis. No one knows anything. Of course, there was no context to that tweet. I'm going to assume it had to do with Bitcoin. And uh, we'll just leave it there. Have a lovely Tuesday, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us. Bye.